Millions of frontline workers keep our economy running and are provided with the latest technology to do their jobs. But digital adoption, especially by frontline workers, is really hard. This is Frontline Innovators. We explore how to overcome challenges and achieve success when we empower our essential workers. I'm Justin Lake. And I'm Gene Signorini. Together, we speak with experts who are leading the way and driving digital transformation to the front line. This podcast is sponsored by Skillful on a mission to help frontline workers learn and use the technology needed to succeed in their jobs. My guest today is a strong team leader, excellent problem solver and organizer. He previously been the supply chain process change manager at Kroger and is currently an independent retail consultant focusing on cost modeling and operational strategy. Please welcome to the show, Joe O'Connor. Welcome, Joe. Thanks for having me, Justin. Looking forward to it. I'm really excited about our discussion today, and I want to jump right into the the first question on Frontline Innovators, which is, what do you see being the biggest challenge facing the frontline deskless workforce today? Certainly. So the, I, as I've seen it evolve, I think the biggest challenge we have today is, is the variety that's available to our frontline and deskless associates, that it's easier than ever to look for alternate jobs, look for other positions, and, and folks at the front line can find that. And it's easy for their frustrations, whether that's with, with leadership, with technology, with the role itself, to, to boil over and easily find an alternative. So I think that because we've reached this incredibly fast pace of change and ideas like efficiency and, and you know, really, truly productive processes has frankly become, it, it's become easy. That's table stakes with so many organizations. The frontline deals with that and their processes are changing very rapidly and they're being automated and, uh, and highly optimized very quickly. And the frontline has to keep the pace with that, with a rapidly changing workforce that rarely has time for true training. It's always on the job training, right? And their options are endless that are, that are the alternates to that. So I think that the, the combination of those, that the processes themselves have become extremely optimized. There's not the time for, uh, for training and for comfort with a process. The expertise gets very spread out and the expertise can easily move and, and change places either within an organization or outside of that organization just as quickly. So I think the deskless workers have uh, really felt both of those coming from each end. You raise a really interesting point, man, and this is a, a huge macro trend right now that we're seeing just a tremendous amount of turnover with frontline workers across all industries. And it seems like uh, you know many of them seem to be swapping one industry for another. You're raising a really interesting point about how the, the variety of roles that they have visibility to now, or maybe just greater awareness, um, is maybe encouraging them to go seek you know, uh, uh, a better place. And I, I wonder, as you're making me think about this, I wonder if they are really solving the problem for themselves that they're looking to solve, or if they're jumping from one operational efficiency environment that they'd rather not be in perhaps to another. And if that's really solving the problem, and if we're going to see, you know, if everything will settle at some point, meaning that maybe they have found a better place for them that's genuinely a better fit for them and, and what they were hoping to do with their career, or if they're just going to find, uh, you know, the need to jump again. Do you have any thoughts on that? 
Well, I think that we we saw this evolution coming pre-pandemic that the the idea of the 40 plus year career at the same company was really waning fast. And, and the the generations that are now approaching their 40s had decided that they didn't necessarily want to be locked in and, and you know, go in and stamp their, their box every day to do their career. So people were already looking for some of that variety. It was just tougher to get prior to uh, you know, the explosion of simple, simple apps and things that I can look for 24 seven and the, the need for frontline workers that are everywhere. So I think a culture that had already started to, uh, to come out in a lot of today has, uh, has really allowed it to accelerate faster with the frontline employees that I can constantly go and look at monster.com or any of these and find if I'm gonna be making something similar and if I, if I know it's gonna be a frustrating job, or I know I'm going to love anything that's thrown at me, it's easy to get that variety. So I think it's a people that were already looking for the variety. Now it's easier and maybe it, it, uh, it behooves them to look for it a little bit faster if they get frustrated with a frontline, like a retail position or one of these that can be a pain. They say, well, I'll just go try something else and I can probably come back if I don't like that anyway. There, there's almost always a need on both ends of it. Yeah, that you're right about them most likely being able to come back if they left on good terms. Uh, there's certainly going to be those opportunities. Do you think there are things that employers can be doing to maybe hold back some, some of that attrition uh, from those frontline workers? Because right now what we hear about is a lot of focus on the hiring side. I haven't heard as much, at least just in kind of public you know, news sources and things like that about attempts to retain. What are your thoughts on that? I think every employer knows how important that is, you know, how well they do it. That's what separates good organizations from great organizations, sure. right? And so, so I think that idea of the internal successor planning has to be a priority within every HR department out there that either you've got to find your frontline employees that need a greater impact on the organization that are accelerating more quickly. And as you work your way up the ladder, you figure out, do you need somebody who's going to be in, in a dedicated expertise type position and somebody who has an absolute passion for one segment of the business or the industry, or somebody that needs to be a, a switch hitter that can bounce around the organization. And that's where I think a lot of the change management roles can lend themselves are the people who I define as translators with an organization. And those are, those are people who I think are difficult to identify, but a smart leadership has to be able to tell who can speak the language uh, of other places in the company. Because we, I think we've all seen that executives, even middle management, don't always speak the same language as your frontline decibels employees. And somebody who can bridge those gaps, even if it's not to the frontline, but bridge the gap between the technology team and the merchandising team, between the leadership team and the accounting team, people who can speak both of those languages uh, become extremely valuable. And so I think that that's something that all organizations have to continue to evolve and keep pursuing is, are they leveraging those people the right way? And are they putting them into a, a point where they have their strengths and supporting them with the rest of the organization? I think those those great uh, resources within a company can get frustrated when they know they've got more to offer, but they don't have either a team to support them, uh, you know, a tool to support them, a boss that supports them, anything along those lines. So the people who you really want to rise and grow, that, that certainly causes attrition and nobody wants to lose a great performer like that, but recognizing where their skills are going to be leveraged the best right there at, you know, there and then in the organization, who's going to be the best to lead the growth of an e-commerce portion is what I think everybody's looking for in a lot of companies right now. Who can lead this transition to my digital business 
Um, but without leaving the, the nuts and bolts, the meat and potatoes of your business and whatever it may be. So I think identifying those individuals and showing them and using them as an example to the rest of the company is very important and, and identify the people who, who get both sides of it and can work as a, as a medium there. They become excellent change agents within the organization and they can be great uh, proponents and examples for the rest of the company to show where, uh, you know, where a passionate career can lead you without siloing yourself within one point of the company. You know, not, not as many people, as we said, want to get that absolute expertise and say, yep, I've been a, a produce manager for 30 years. You know, some people love to have that box checked um, and getting them into that spot if that's really where they want to be the best of the best at one thing, or if they want to be the, the agents that are able to play throughout the organization and help the growth uh, and, and the evolution of the business. Yeah. Two, two big things that you said just in the first few minutes here that I'm dying to dig into uh, more deeply. The, the first uh, is something you just said about change management folks being translators. And I'm, I'm not going to explore this further, but I want to come back to that uh, later on in the show. And then the other thing you mentioned is that we never have enough time for training. And I, I love that. And I think uh, it's, it's absolutely uh, correct. I think um, the proper amount of time is never allocated to training. I'd like to explore that further and see what the downstream penalties are, uh, you know, of not investing that time on the front end. So let's come back to those topics. Um, but before we get into that, I'd really like uh, for you to share with me and for with our audience a little bit more about your background. How did you end up in the role that you're in today? Talk about that journey to whatever depth you'd like to go into, but uh, we'd like to get a little bit about uh, your background. Absolutely. Well, I started my career uh, in mechanical engineering. So I designed conveyor systems for a few years. And uh, that was in the late 2000s there, so not the biggest time for distribution growth there in the recession and found my way into Kroger in a Lean Six Sigma analytics role, you know, really an entry level uh, studying the, the data around our business. And so uh, created a good understanding of Kroger and our role in, in retail and how our, uh, you know, how our data flows together to create those optimized and those very efficient processes. Like I said, that became... I think the table stakes of a lot of organizations in the 90s and 2000s of just doing things, cutting out the fat of your business. Uh, and uh, that allowed me to learn a lot about our company and a lot about the ways that it interacts with our customers. And so worked my way through several um, departments, really starting to study cost modeling and cost structures. What do we really pay? What do our vendor agreements look like? Um, and, and how do we source and operate better, more holistically? And that, that moved me into a merchandising and sourcing type role where I was studying all of our relationships with wholesalers and with our fresh meat producers and distributors around the, the, uh, the network. Uh, and that led into supply chain and spent the last four years of my career within our supply chain as a process change manager uh, with uh, a great deal of responsibility over all of our reverse logistics and all the things that flow backwards from the store, as well as a lot of the perimeter of our network. So usually not the, the core shipping mac and cheese to the store 10 cases a day. Uh, it was the fresh sandwiches and salads and all the delivery that happened daily straight to store with a lot of those. It was consolidation centers and where our inventory points were held. And so a lot of that fringe of the network. And it allowed me to have a good understanding of a lot of the businesses that complement a major retailer and how they function differently and how we can learn from all of them to, to hopefully create a very cohesive network that's very adaptable. Because as we, we talked about earlier, the efficiency for things that are, are done all day um, that's easily automated. You know, most organizations have figured out how to do that really, really well. You know, and I think any organization that still is profitable has figured that out with their core business. And that's that's where you cover that 80-20. And then it's that last 20 that you've got to be very adaptable. You've got to be very nimble and have the right expertise and the right vendor partners and really the whole right network setup 
to accomplish that 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 last deal that makes a customer very satisfied and that keeps your business holistic uh, without just doing the the key things right. And I think it allows organizations to grow. So yeah, so I worked my way through our, our kind of cost modeling and merchandising sourcing departments, and I spent a lot of time in supply chain. And then uh, this past year, I decided to move into independent retail consulting. And so now I work with a number of suppliers, understanding the retail network and how I can help them with their operational strategy and, and the cost modeling that goes into that type of work. That's amazing. You know, retail, as you're just describing that, Retail grocery is a hidden, complex business that's hidden in plain sight in front of all of us. And, and what I mean by that, you were talking about reverse logistics, which I want to explore for a minute, but even just the coordination of all of the vendor partners that are doing work in and around a typical retail grocer is phenomenal. I've heard a number, I don't know if this is accurate, um, that something like 70% of the labor that happens in a retail grocery store is actually happening by third-party vendors, merchandisers, and, and the actual vendors that are delivering product to the store. Uh, whether that number is right, it's it's a big number. It's bigger than most people would realize that the Coke, the Pepsi guys, the Frito-Lay guys, you know, are, are all coming to that store. And there's this like orchestration of all of those activities that have to take place in order for the shelves to be stocked properly, you know? And I think- yeah. And you've got exponentially more people involved than when a change has to occur. Yes. So, so when one of those companies decides to get out of, for example, the DSD ice cream business was a major change that happened in 2019. Our company had to come together and say, what do they do for us? What are all the things that now our employees are going to have to do that they've never done with these products? They've always seen that palette of those, those SKUs sitting there. They never had to care. Now we have so many people involved and you're not always in charge of your own future there. You've got to have everything in sync and have a clean handoff. Um, so, so yeah, I think that that business and across, you know, like you said, the, the whole grocery store, there's a lot of that that intersects and all those, uh, all those parts of the model have to be congruent with each other. It's fascinating. And I think I've always enjoyed learning about the behind the scenes of, of the global economy and getting to see how some of these processes happen. I'm very familiar with the direct store delivery, uh, you know, model of distribution for manufacturers in the CPG space and things like that. What I think the pandemic has done for the general public has raised their awareness. And we're still talking about it today. But when when we first started hearing about supply chain problems was, uh, you know, in the early part of 2020, when the pandemic was really first starting to, to roar up into full speed. And, you know, everybody was running out of, uh, you know, paper products, right? And all of a sudden, the general public became very aware, like, well, who makes that stuff? And how does that stuff get to the grocery store? And why are the shelves empty? And who's supposed to be stocking the shelves? And I was just fascinated that it, it took something as critical and severe as, you know, a toilet paper shortage, uh, or at least stockouts, maybe not a shortage because there was plenty of toilet paper, but there was definitely stockouts, <laughs> um, you know, to just make everybody aware of how that stuff happens. And so it's, it's actually been an interesting to me because with my friends and family now, uh, not that we make a habit out of talking about supply chain, you know, topics all the time, but it is, it is interesting. I think just the general public is more aware of the complexities that go into, uh, you know, making a retailer work. Yeah, it, it used to be a, a retailer, or I'm sorry, an interview question for us when we were interviewing folks, and they'd say, what do you like to work? Uh, you know, what do you like about this? And, and I genuinely would say that I, I liked having conversations around the dinner table about 
how stuff got here. It, it, it yeah. becomes fun. And I think it's engaging with, with everybody in our walks of life because we all interact with it in some way. And why are, why are restaurants different than retail? And why is Home Depot different than, than you know, a food retailer and those types of things? So it's, it's a fascinating world. Like you said, it's constantly evolving between our customer tastes and what, what Whole Foods did you know, 10 to 20 years ago and how they redefined the model yeah. and how uh, you know, so many different retailers have their own, uh, their own way of doing it. And now that we're getting into home delivery and things like that, there's a lot of different operating models out there. And it's, it's fascinating to see how these, these lines of business and the customers adapt to it. And, and it just speaks to, as you pointed out before, uh, all of this change now, the change is being accelerated and it affects all of those store associates in terms of their job. I mean, their roles have actually changed over the last couple of years as we have, you know, order online and pick up at the store and all these other activities that are happening now. I mean, it's completely redefined roles, probably added roles and, and perhaps, you know, eliminated some other roles or just shifted the resource requirements inside a store. Um, but that's a, a lot of change for those men and women to, to have to absorb. It is. And it, like you said, it goes fast. And, and I'm sure we'll loop back to it when, uh, you know, as we talk about technology more and more. But the more you learn about the business, the more you realize actions that have to be taken. And, and that becomes the role of so much of our executive leadership within any organization is what's the most important change that's going to get us the most bang for our buck. And that, that always doesn't show up on a standard ROI type of analysis. It's uh, you know, how, how did we just change? Is our workforce ready for it? And what do we know now that says, did we make the right change or do we need to change course again? And technology is this beautiful tool now that we can study so much. And there's, there's more information about a business, certainly one that's, that's you know, a $100 billion business that then any analyst or any team can try to understand rapidly or all at once. And that's where, again, that value of the translators comes in to say, what does this data mean to our business? What are our associates ready to do? And how do we take advantage of, you know, whatever our strengths are at that point? So that's, I'm glad it was a good segue back into the, your uh, reference earlier about change management folks being responsible for um, translation. It's, and I think it's a fantastic point. And I've asked other guests on other episodes about the communication methods, but I haven't heard anybody else mention translation. And I love that idea. And, and one of the things I think that gets lost a little bit in the front lines is that senior leadership in the organization talking about pivoting and talking about embracing new business models and things like that um, are really often talking to the street, right? Talking to investors, talking to the public, maybe even talking to vendors at a very macro scale, right? To kind of signal to the to their industry, uh, the changes that you're making, why you're making them and, and to the consumers at large. That I think some of that can be left out with the men and women that are on the front lines who are thinking, you know, what is in this for me? How is this going to impact me? Am I still going to have a job after this change takes place? So your, your point about translating, I think, is really good. It, it doesn't mean that they're not capable of understanding those other macro trends as well. They, they're watching the same news that we're all watching. But I wonder if we're bringing that to them in a sufficiently translated version to say, okay, here's the version that we want to explain to you. Here's how this is going to impact you. And so your, your suggestion of, of uh, change management folks playing a role in that translation, I think is fantastic. So let's, let's explore that a little bit further. Are there examples that, that we can draw from that you can share with us that might, um, you know, be good examples to, to talk through? Um, you know, I think, you know, overall with, with our, our change management translators, it's, it's again, getting an understanding of, uh, of what is the data. Because so many people who are outside of that frontline 
really only have the data to rely on. And so it's, it's establishing how good is it? Um, how much do we, uh, you know, how much can we act on it? And how much is that gonna matter with what we change now? So, so I'll use an example that we would have within our floral departments. And so you can think about the massive spikes that you have in flower sales and in candy sales and things like that throughout the year that you can't always build a, a day in day out process for floral because floral in you know September and October really isn't that much to talk about, but floral in February and May is as big as anything that there is in a grocery store. So, so I think what we had to try to figure out is how is our floral network set up? And we had to have those translators who understood where do the flowers come from? How do they need to be processed? When do we add water? When do we cut them? And, and we were able to get together you know, good groups of those translators to understand you know, what is the operating model of a business how does that translate over into the data that we've got all these expertise that can mine it? Because there's a lot of great resources out there now that really understand technology that can break down the, the billions of rows of data, make it clean, make it understandable, and really glean some insights from it. But if, if those don't make sense to the way the operation works, it doesn't always click and it doesn't always lead to actual improvements. So what we would try to do is, is almost run alternate type scenarios and say, let's test something here for Christmas and then let's see, all right, is it going to work again for Valentine's Day? But it's going to be all different items coming from different places in the world. So how is that going to affect it? And I think identifying those variables is something that we we would constantly struggle with because there's always a weather event that happens. There's almost always a special case when something has that rapid seasonality that change management gets extremely difficult because you can't always trust your data because you look back last year and you say, well, that was pandemic. Of course, that data doesn't make any sense anymore. So now we're years removed from being able to say, you know, it was always easy to look at year over year type of analyses. Well, now we are, we are stuck, you know, we're stuck in a point where our business is evolving so rapidly, those spikes due to holidays or due to seasonal demand or due to things like a pandemic, um, you know, really skew a lot of our data. And so you've got to have those translators in place to really understand why the operation behaved the way it did. Why did the DC manager decide that they needed to get this truck out instead of that truck out? Or when we didn't have enough roses, here's how we decided where all the roses were going to go so that every store got some. Um, you know, I think that 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 role of the the organizational change consultant, that that change agent has to be somebody who is outside of picking the trucks, has to be somebody who is outside of, you know, getting a cost from the supplier. Those dedicated change management teams are the ones who can really become the scientists of the business and the studiers of the business. Um, but they've got to understand that operation. I think it's a delicate balance that we've got between all those associates to figure out who can be that objective view and who can study the data in the right way to make those operational changes with the right balance that you, you want some critical thinking at the front line and at the desk lessons associate, but not so much it distracts from the nuts and bolts of the work. You know, we've automated a lot of the things and we've streamlined those processes. So the ability of that change agent and that translator uh, to work in between them and work very, very rapidly or, or learn fast, fail fast, that type of a thing, that allows those highly seasonal and, and you know, what often become the critical lines of the business to succeed and hopefully establish a good process and kind of a good mojo going forward. Because as you said, it's very easy to get into a habit where you're just change, 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 change. And you don't know, did our last change work or are we constantly just adjusting some dials? Yeah. Well, and you know, a lot of the focus of, of the, this podcast is on digital transformation initiatives as it relates to those frontline workers. And you've just raised something that I want to dig into a little bit. So, you know, you talked about now we have billions of rows of data that we can draw from that we can now analyze and we can make decisions based on the data and the insights that we're learning from that data. 
And, you know, you talked about an example. I'm just going to continue down that path with the, the, the simple example of cutting the flowers and adding water to the flowers and things like that. So you may be um, deriving insights from the data that you have about when and how you should cut them and, and make all those changes and how that data now needs to be recorded going forward. What I wonder is, do we do a good enough job of communicating out to the men and women on the front lines about why those changes are being implemented? We, we used to ask you to water once a day. I'm making up this example because I don't know what's right here, but you know, we used to ask you to water once a day. Now we're asking you to water uh, twice a day and we need you to record it in the POS system or in this mobile application that we're asking you to use. And all it is is just a kind of a one-way directive to say you have to do this new thing. Do you think we do a good enough job of really explaining to them why we're asking them to make this change and what the impact is and uh, how we plan to use this data? I'm curious to get your take on that. You know, very generally, I've got to answer, I would say no. Most organizations don't do a great job of explaining the why behind a change. And most changes, uh, you know, incorporate little more than a bullet point of why am I making you aware of this? And it's, you know, it would be a, whether it's a memo sent out from a, a field coordinator or something along those lines, um, you know, most organizations will, will get that one statement that says it'll better support our customers or provides insights, yada, yada, yada. It's usually very generic why. And that's yeah. where it fails, that, that a bad why is as good as no why at all. It's basically just, uh, it's again, it's an order. So, so I think that that's something that organizations can start to do better. And I think we, we would dabble in it for the right change is really establishing those, the train the trainer type sessions and the, what do I need to look for? You know, and, and what those establish is, when my frontline employee has to make a change, why do I care about it? Because the people who are in charge of my career are going to care about it as well. And, and that's, that's not the best answer, but it helps them establish, yep, it's going to be looked for. I actually do need to do this because my store manager, it's on his checklist now. And, and as he or she are walking through, they're going to know what to look for, which sometimes the change matters to a store manager and they're going to care anyway. A lot of times it's just something that they need to be aware of that, hey, if you see this, you know, mislabeled, it means that there's a problem. But if you see this action taking place, they're probably doing the right thing. Breaking that, that why, and I think that understanding of a frontline employee to understand, um, you know, this is a task, this is a process, here's what it leads to. That world of understanding all of the inputs and outputs of their task and what is changing, it's frankly gotten too complicated. And so I think it's difficult for any organization to explain why in a more concrete, objective manner to a frontline employee that they don't, they don't always care. The answer just becomes too convoluted to say, well, we need our data to be more accurate for this person so that when the reports are run by this person, they're able to update this feed or they're able to loop back to a supplier frontline employees, it's not going to matter or it's just going to cause more questions. So I think a better understanding of, you know, uh, you know, trusting the upward level of the organization that every frontline employee has to buy into, I'm doing this for the right reason long term, if I choose that I'm going to stay with this organization, right? Back to right. our earlier point. Right. And, and, and I've got to believe that my role has this greater, greater view. So I think having that general understanding of, if I'm a produce associate and I got to know when am I going to cut and water my flowers and how am I going to lay my displays out, I've got to trust that at a macro and at a micro, it's really, well, is this change going to stick? Is my boss going to be looking for it? Is this going to be in my performance metrics uh, or is this the flavor of the week and I can keep doing it my own way and it's not always, it's not going to matter next month. There's, yeah. there's too many yeah. changes like that that are out there that I say, well, I, I outlasted my last store manager. I can outlast this guy and it's really not going to matter beyond that. There, there's too much of that. And I think that distracts from 
real core change that can drive a more cohesive organization. But I think it's 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 a delicate balance again of, you know, not having to provide all of the detail and the technical background of why a change is happening to a frontline employee, but ensuring that you've got their buy-in that that their their bosses and their managers are in support of it and that they trust their organization is doing it for the right reasons and not just to cut costs, you know, work my role out or do something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I think trust, you mentioned trust a few times in, in that last uh, answer. And I think that's a really big point that comes up a lot here. I I do think in some cases, in some uh, cultures that uh, I've been, um, privy to work around, I have seen a little bit of a disconnect in trust between frontline workers and kind of the rest of the company, right? That makes them feel like they're isolated from some of the decision-making and, and uh, you know, inside that corporation. And so I, I think there's an opportunity for that communication um, and just the, the culture to, you know, evolve over time to establish better trust. And as we think about change management and we, as we think about digital transformation initiatives, um, there is a, a, a massive amount of trust required in order for those things to be successful. And um, so it's it sounds obvious when we talk about it on this podcast, more isolated from all the challenges of a project and, and you know, isolated from the, the complexities of a 100,000 person organization and stuff like that. So yeah, I get it. It sounds obvious and easy when we talk about it on a show like this, but um, it's something that I think we can't overlook when we look at the challenges that hold back adoption of technology or any other change inside the organization trust and communication are, are two paramount issues to making those things be successful. Yeah. As all of, uh, you know, any business becomes more and more technically complex and there's more, there's more data, there are more pros and cons to be weighed. The, the people who the change impacts just cannot be the ones who study that and understand it to the best. That's why yeah. those these organizational change managers have to be there. And, and you've got to have a culture that is fed to say, we've got the right people who understand the front line, who really get what you need and what you need to do your job well. They're the ones who made this decision with your input. You know, you can't always have a, a survey that goes out to every single produce manager to ask them, what do they think about this type of thing? So you, you've got to have that baseline, you know, and if you've ever looked at five dysfunctions of a team and those types of the tool, it, it, it's always based around trust is, you know, do I buy what they're trying to sell me here? Do I trust this organization or do I just keep looking around and I just add to those attrition type problems? You know, you've got to identify those folks as well. So building that baseline is huge because the, the, the pros and cons and all of the different factors that have to be weighed are very challenging. What are some of the tools and or technologies, frameworks that you would advocate for when dealing with the complexities of, of change management and complex organizations like we've talked about? Tools. You know, I, I'll always say in terms of a, a technical and a change management tool, Microsoft Excel is everybody's best friend. It, you know, it's, it, it is the, the baseline, but it is how, at least within my organization, the, the business spoke to each other. You know, there were there were dozens and dozens of tools on the back end that would gather and aggregate and, and create our data into a database type form. But being able to manipulate that as as a user and as somebody who understands it, usually that takes a lot of iterations. Uh, you know, we started getting into Tableau pretty regularly for really good visualizations. You know, it's that next level of, of charting tools and of quick filtering tools. So, uh, you know, those would be two that I'd call out in terms of understanding what's my data telling me getting that type of a visual and getting that that flexibility in front of, again, those change translators and the folks who need to understand, is, is this reflective of my operation? And where do I think I need to go within our operation? 
those are two that can really shed some light on a problem in a different way or, or make it more obvious to the people who only have five minutes. If this is your elevator speech with the guy you need to get buy-in from, and within a bigger organization, there often become dozens of those folks that you just need them not to get in your way. Uh, a very simple, you know, charter, a very quick answer in a meeting can can work wonders. And those are usually only done with those simplified tools. I would never answer that question by saying you need to have good Python script analysis or, or something like that, because, you know, typically I'll say it's too difficult to understand the answer. And I need to be you know, when when a division president's sitting in a meeting and he says, well, what about this? It's extremely powerful to be uh, to be the person in the room who can answer that question right away. It's not in our slide deck. It's not in an appendix, but I'm going to be able to answer it before this conversation is over. And and tools like Excel and Tableau can do that really quickly and really powerfully. That's good. Coming into today as part of the preparation you had shared with me, uh, the congruence model. Tell tell me and our audience a little bit more uh, about the congruence model and and kind of where you think that fits into this conversation. Sure. So the, the Nadler-Tushman uh, congruence model is something we studied. I got a degree in executive leadership and organizational change at Northern Kentucky University. And we studied this congruence model as part of studying, you know, how does your organization work? And we would use examples, you know, companies like Enron and Oracle in the early days. And, and there were, there's some great templates out there that say this is how this organization was structured and why it was extremely successful at one element of its business or why it succeeded or failed, you know, what was missing. So the organizational congruence model really matches up and, and it allows users to kind of visualize what are the for the organization. What's more cultural? What's more, you know, you, you have to have been here to understand it versus what's formal. Who reports to who? Who's incentivized by what? And that matches up with the people who are doing it and the work that's being done. So what are those tasks? Who are doing it? And then how do they mesh with the rest of the organization? If that is not, you know, smoothly fed by your strategy and the inputs of the organization, the inputs being resources and, and history really as to how we got here, that's got to mesh with who your organization is today if you want the output that you want. And your output is the vision and, and the view of the organization that whoever's in charge needs to have. You certainly need your inputs of that. You need to say, okay, we got here through, uh, uh, through a certain history, through a set of resources that we have. If, if your vision and your history are totally out of line with who you are centrally as an organization, you have to change who you are centrally as an organization. So, so I think it's identifying where, you know, how did we get here? Who are we? Where are we going? And the Nadler-Tushman tool is a really uh, interesting visual to try to understand the inputs and outputs and, and the questions that should be asked of an organization to say, how big is this change? Who is involved in this change? How did we establish that we think we need this change? And, uh, you know, ultimately, are we ready for this change? Or do we need to make another change first? Do we need a new president in place? Do we need a, you know, a new trainer in every store? Or, or do we need to, you know, break up the organizational structure and say this person's not incentivized by their sales anymore? Um, so it's, it's, a, it's an interesting visual tool. It's fairly simple. And Nadler Tushman is the name of it, uh, of identifying, you know, who you are a bit of as an organization and, and are you in sync with yourself? So that sounds like that's pretty high level of, of what you were talking about in terms of really the, the planning, the, the assessing the current state and planning and really thinking through what changes may be required as, as at an organizational level. Are there any elements of that that kind of dig deeper or, or go deeper into the uh, organization that might actually directly impact the frontline workers? Or would you say that that model is really more for just kind of macro level planning? 
No, I think it, it absolutely lends itself down to the deeper level. And if we can loop back to the complexity of like the DSD vendors that happen in a grocery store, you know, if we talk about our, our people and our formal organization, you know, who we are as a company, that has to be part of it is who is the face of our company to all the customers working through. As you said, everybody who's walked through a grocery store has seen the guy with the Coca-Cola logo on his, on his shirt or something like that. Um, and if your change involves some of those external entities, uh, it, it certainly has to play into not just an executive view of who do we think we are and, and what are the top level bullets that we love to share with our board of directors, but again, who is who has their hands on this work? Who's interacting with our customer? If our envision is a more engaging workplace, then then everybody who's in front of that customer has to be a part of it, and those other organizations have to be aligned. So you kind of get maybe more into a three or four or five dimensional model to say, well, does this matter about the products and how they're getting here? Does, does the truck driver and where he's driving through the parking lot matter? Does the guy who's checking them out matter? Um, and, and they can all play into it. So I think anytime that you identify either, either a weakness and you say, yep, the informal side of our organization is not in sync or, or you just want to dig into your change specifically, you've got to take it more into the hands-on level of that model. And so, so I think if you were to apply those DSD type vendors or, or the, all the vendors that interact with any business, that has to be part of your congruence. That is part of your organization. You know, whether you want to think of it that way or not, those intersections with your suppliers and with your vendors are key to understanding whether your organization is ready for a change. Yeah. That's really uh, interesting uh, thought process. I'm going to look into uh, to that more. You, you sent me the link, and I'll make sure that we get that link uh, posted in the show notes so that uh, others in the audience can can take a look at that as well. It's pretty interesting. When we think about technology innovation throughout a large enterprise like those that you've been associated with, do you think that the way that we handle uh, technology adoption for frontline workers is a different exercise than that which we would apply toward our more traditional corporate workers? Uh, I certainly believe there would be because of that, that change anxiety of, of again, you know, maybe back to that why question it's who wants to know this, you know, a a lot of times the changes isn't necessarily a process change, but it's, well, now it's, it's going to be on your RF handheld and here's the approval that you're going to have, or, Here's why I need you to check off when you adjusted your order and things like that. So, so there's certainly some fear and, and maybe that again goes back to our foundation of trust that, that the organization wants to be successful and that you don't have an organization that has the wrong, uh, the wrong ulterior motives or the wrong executive leadership that's taken us in the wrong direction. Right. So certainly, yeah, I think that, that that anxiety at the front line and maybe that lack of trust can be, uh, you know, can be viewed or can be brought out through a technology rollout of, well, this is how they're going to replace us all with robots or some corporate guy just wants to be able to run a report so that he can, you know, send my boss a, a nasty gram and tell me to get back to work. So, so there's plenty of people out there and it matters to the individual tastes and, and you know, different folks that, uh, that are in these roles. But some people are, are certainly just a little bit more hesitant to take the change or they believe that any change that is happening is probably going to hurt them. You know, unfortunately, there's people out there who always believe that the change is wrong or that it's going to cause more problems. Um, but again, it's the evolution of our work. And I think understanding and trusting that the work is going to continue to evolve is, is a good thing. I once heard a, an interview from a guy who worked at A&P, the old grocery store years ago. And he said, I was a store manager for 30 years and I had the exact same checklist on day one that I did on my last day on the job. And he realized then this was in a, 
you know, a process change and organizational change type of a presentation. He said, we, we probably needed the change and whether other folks were scared of it or not, I don't know. But recognizing that doing things exactly the same way isn't going to work, you know, and I think we realize that we're evolving as customers so much. Hopefully folks feel more empathetic to an organization that if I want to be able to just swing by and pick up my groceries from the back of the store, uh, well, if I'm a if I'm a worker, I need to understand my work inside those four walls are going to have to change to support it. So so hopefully, you know, at least within retail, I find it a little bit maybe easier to understand or I, I would think that if I was in the front line still that it would would understand to say, well, I get that me as a customer, I need to have more options. I need this business to evolve to support my, you know, my needs because everybody else is doing it or because it's more convenient, whatever else the need. Um, and you hope that your employees are going to buy into that and realize, well, and then my processes need to change to support that as well. Yeah, I, I definitely think there's a strong likelihood for them to be aware of the need for that change. I don't know that it always solves for the change anxiety that you spoke about before, right? It's still going to be uncomfortable. People are still going to be... Um, you know, comfortable in the way that they did their job before. So they may understand it, but they may still not like it <laughs> or it, or it may still cause them some discomfort. And that actually goes like really full circle back around to something that you said at the beginning of the, the conversation, which is that many times um, there's not sufficient time for training. And I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I feel like a, a lot of times some of the early communication and training efforts um, are pushed aside because there's such an urgency to just implement the change. And so I, I think it's a really great point for us to go back to, to say, yeah, there's not enough time, but we have to make the time. We have to do those things better proactively. Otherwise we're going to find the time later in, in other ways. We're going to find the time time later by having to solve for poor customer experience. We're going to find the time later by having to increase the amount of support resources we apply to the technology that we're trying to implement because nobody's using it correctly, right? There are downstream implications to that, but I think it's very easy to overlook some of the things that we should be doing better on the front end. What are your thoughts to that? Uh, I would agree. And I think as we talk about the labor shortage that we have today and the, the constant churn of workers, um, it, it becomes the role of that that leader or, you know, whether it's a coordinator or store manager or something along those lines to really have a good uh, a good communication plan with the team to understand we we have to take this change. And if that process does become more efficient, well, we can't just keep doing it the slow way. And so you're you're either going to lose the, the hours and the budget that that store has or if I'm the change agent and I'm the corporate officer, I know that, well, P7, you know, of this year is when I said that it was going to be in everybody's budgets. And so the labor is going to be reduced and everybody's going to be looking for it. So sometimes those things get delayed and you say, well, that's still in the budget. I still have to do this change. We still have to either either change a labor standard or, or remove that process from the store. And understanding, you know, how you can cause a bigger problem for yourself by resisting that change is something that organizations, you know, uh, maybe need to communicate a little bit better of, well, what if I keep doing it the old way? What problems is that going to cause? Well, it's going to take you twice as long and you're going to have to ask the other guys to do this help. And then you're probably not going to do this. You know, we came to terms with the fact that processes that were probably more complicated or had more volatility or more delays just meant something else was getting skipped. And we had yes. to try to have an understanding of that when you looked at a, a store or a department or even, you know, separate processes is, hey, what's the first thing to get cut? Is it sweeping the floors? Is that the thing that we're, you know, are we kind of okay with maybe that gets missed sometimes? Or is it, uh, well, I was, I had 10 candidates I was supposed to interview today, but I was too busy doing my process the old way. So 
Um, so I think organizations certainly can, can understand that their change and their change in training plans can fall through the same way that their business can hit delays and can hit problems. So realize if your change doesn't take effect the way that you wanted it to, what's going to get missed? You know, is your process itself going to fail or are they going to do your process at the expense of something else? Yeah. And I think the fact that organizational change continues to, to move so rapidly uh, and we don't always have a full understanding of the why or we don't have an engaged workforce that knows, am I still going to need to do this in a month or does this make sense today? And maybe it won't make sense for a month. How do I still do it, you know, and get in sync with my organization, whether it's my budgets and I'm going to lose my time or I just don't have the bodies to be able to accomplish it. Yeah, I think that's well said. Wait, so I'm talking to a guy here who started building uh, conveyor systems. And when I think, uh, you know, about technology, we tend to think of the bits and bytes, but I also think about conveyor systems as actually being technology. I mean, there's a lot of uh, very sophisticated technology is in, um, you know, conveyor systems and stuff today, but just more generally, what, what do you love about working with technology? I think it's fascinating to be able to learn so much about uh, a network an ecosystem, you know, what are all the, the inputs and outputs you know, what are, you know, I think about so many of those tools and those, uh, the efficiency type tools that we talked about, the whole Lean Six Sigma thing, whether it's the, the process mapping and the time studies and things that it's, it's very interesting for me coming from an engineering background to be able to want to know more. You know, I was, I thought maybe I was going to be a, you know, race car designer or something like that. So you think about the studies of tire pressure and, you know, whether my fuel ratios are right and what those racers did back in the fifties and sixties to try to understand how do I make my car faster? Technology is this beautiful science tool to gain so much information and pull so much, uh, you know, not just data, but pull so many answers out of it and, and pull so many, uh, you know, so many elements of your business out of it. So I love the fact that we can learn and we can solve, uh, you know, just about any question that comes up that we can answer. And maybe it takes three or four different answers where we say, you know, if, if we're asking a question about our customer behaviors, we can look at sales and we can look at product movement and, you know, footsteps through the store and it'll evolve into how many times did a customer's, you know, Bluetooth cell phone ping against, you know, the front door of a store or something like that. So I think technology is an amazing tool to learn about your business. And as somebody who's always been passionate and curious about those types of things, it's, it's a beautiful tool to, to pull all that together and to, to really filter it in a way that makes some sense. Somebody may delete the podcast when I ask this question, but do you think there can ever be too much data? No. Uh, I mean, I think that there will always be more data than there are people who understand it. I, yeah. I don't, I would never say that there's too much data because for the right question, you need to dive into that data. You know, we, we, we would have, you know, items like, you know, that would study every transaction, every coupon, you know, every, you know, every scan and the, the seconds in between them doesn't mean we always had a great understanding of what it meant or why the data looked the way that it did or what are the outliers in the data. But no, I would never say that there can be too much data. It's just a lack of usefulness of it. Yeah. And, and perhaps what, what you're really saying is, you know, resources and tools to analyze the data that we have. So the problem isn't the volume of data. It may be the resources and tools to, to assess it and turn it into something meaningful, uh, you know, on the back end. Is that a, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but is that a good way to Hundred percent. You know, we, yeah. we started paying a lot more attention, you know, in my in my supply chain career to our our old cardboard, the cardboard that we would sell back to be recycled, and really having an understanding 
nobody had ever figured out, well, are we selling all that we should be? You know, do we think that this, you know, what else could be happening to this cardboard? It was those things that never matter much. It was an extra revenue stream, but, but that type of technology and, and, you know, allowing you to take something that maybe nobody ever thought you needed to data around. So it doesn't matter. It's just cardboard. It's, you know, yeah. people thought of it as trash for a long time, you know, having the organization grow and using technology to study that can, can open a lot of doors. And I always told my old boss that there's, there's going to be operational projects and there's going to be benefit there if we just understood our business better. And there's a yeah. lot of elements that are still black holes to us. Is there anything you don't enjoy about working with technology? Well, it, even though it allows you to answer every question, it, it makes every answer more complicated or, or leaves it all with a, uh, a but or an if at the end of it. And you say, well, yeah. if, if our data is representative and if my, if my statistical t-test you know, is, is accurate and you say, yep, I'm within 95% confidence that we did you know, reduce inventory levels, that type of thing. So because, because technology allows us to have a more complex system, it, it has to enable the answers to be a little bit more complex and we have to become better gamblers. We have to become better at understanding, was my data good enough? Was it representative enough to, uh, to make this choice or to move further in the project? You know, if, if I'm just in something that's, that's a diagnostic and I'm trying to figure out, is this a problem at all? I've got to feel good enough to say, yes, it is a problem or it's not big enough for us to waste the resources on it yet. And so technology, allows us to answer and, and feed information into that question, but it perpetually allows more questions to be able to be answered that can, that can delay the process or can just convolute the answer itself. Yeah. And that kind of speaks to the, the, just the, the resources, both technology and people that can be working on assessing, you know, and, and drawing out insights from that data and being able to then create, you know, new tests to, to go and, and take action with. And, and when you talk about being better gamblers, um, you know, that's, that's an interesting choice of words because it is, it's about managing risk, which is really what gambling is, right? It's, it's about looking at the risks that we're taking and, and trying to be smart about what we're testing and how we're using the data to, um, you know, take risk, but measured risk and understand, you know, how big the risk is that we're taking as we go through that exercise. So it's a really good, good way to think about it. Yeah, it's easy for an organization to get into analysis paralysis, you know, I think has become the term where, yeah. uh, you know, and, and a division president who doesn't want to do a project can easily just keep answering, you know, or asking questions and show me this, show me this and, and can paralyze a project there. So I think an organization that like said gambler or, you know, getting ready to say, do we know enough to take that next step? That that's a balance that every organization has to figure out because you can you can spend gobs and gobs of resources that isn't worth paying for them even, or you can push put one person on the right thing and make millions of dollars. So having the organization yeah. that can study their data and make bets on it well enough, that's the the next level of it. Yeah. It's a good thought. And, uh, and Joe, we've got to, we've got to wrap it up there. Um, the time always goes so fast on these conversations. So, um, I hope for the audience, I hope you found the conversation with Joe as enjoyable as I have. And, and if so, please share and rate the podcast. Five-star ratings help ensure that it gets promoted to other professionals like you that are innovating on the front lines. This podcast is sponsored by Skillful the mobile digital adoption platform for deskless and frontline workers. Visit the website at skillful.com. That's S-K-Y-L-L-F-U-L.com. 
And if you or someone you know is out there innovating on the front lines, we'd love to hear about it. Please reach out to me on LinkedIn and share your story. Uh, we have had a few referrals lately to some other podcast guests, so I'm looking forward to uh, getting those folks scheduled. So keep those referrals coming to all of our uh, podcast guests and to the audience that's listening. If you know somebody else that would be a great guest on the show, we'd love to hear about it. So uh, definitely get in touch with me and we'll see you on the next episode. Thanks, Joe. Thank you.